2: Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. Today we're going to be talking about community-based conservation as a model for protecting wildlife corridors. Over the past several weeks, uh, I've been talking about a variety of different factors that affect the lateral thinking and process that is wildlife conservation, and that conservation for wildlife is mainly about people and getting people to work together. So today I've uh, got our guests, Dr. Tony Povolidis, I believe I pronounced that correctly, and uh, Dr. Dusty Becker of lifenetnature.org. So if you want to check them out, you're welcome to do that. We would love to have callers call in during the show, and uh, that number is 866 four seven two five seven eight eight or we will be uh taking email uh at wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W I L D I Z E at W I L D I Z E org. So I'd like to get uh into our show. We're gonna have a nice long con convert conservation conversation here with uh Dr. Tony Povoletis and Dr. Dusty Becker. Um just a little bit of a uh an intro um I'd say between the three of us here today, we have about 70 years worth of conservation on the ground experience going on. And I first met uh, Tony in 2009 at the Defenders of Wildlife Carnivore Conservation uh, Conference in Denver. And he was in the process of just finishing up some studies on uh, jaguar conservation in the U.S. and uh, things going on with carnivore conservation in the San Juan Mountains. So right now, I would like to welcome Tony Povolidis and Dr. Dusty Becker. Come on in.
3: Good morning. Uh, It's great to be here. This is Tony speaking. It's a beautiful morning here in Arizona, and there was just a most beautiful uh, moon set uh, down the over toward Tucson we could see the moon setting it was just just gorgeous this morning so oh, we're really, yeah we're really glad to be here I mean it really reminds you how how wonderful this planet is that we're living on
2: yes and that we can connect in a variety of ways and
4: uh, I understand uh, well let's say hi to dusty dusty are you there yep I'm here too and I'm really happy to be here this I'm, I'm so pleased that you've got this show going well thank and- you. So I'm really, really looking forward to our conversation this morning.
2: Well, great. Well, we have an interesting little situation going on here. We were trying to connect with um, Tony and Dusty's project on the ground in Kenya. Uh, They're not as adept at Skyping as we are, but they might be emailing in. They might be able to be listening live, which is a nine-hour, nine- or ten-hour difference between where we are and um, depending on if you're in Arizona, uh, California, Colorado, or Kenya, um, but we might be getting some emails uh, in from the project, and that is uh, Kariki, am I correct? Karika. Um, Karika uh, on it- the ground, and I'm going to let Dusty and Tony tell you a little bit more about that, but what we're going to get into is Dusty and Tony have been working in conservation in a variety of fields around the world, not just Africa. They're uh, relatively new to working projects in Africa, but that doesn't mean they're new to being in Africa. So if you could give us a little bit of information about your organization, uh, a little background, um, and how you came to start LifeNet.org, LifeNet Nature and how you ended up in Kenya. Why don't you start, Dusty?
4: Well, actually, Tony started LifeNet Nature. Okay, then let's so. start with Tony. <laughs>
3: <laughs> okay, I'll just say a few words about it. Um, Dusty and I are co-directors. It's, uh, it's a small organization, essentially a mom and pop type conservation organization. And it got started in the, in the early nineties, actually before, uh, uh, Dusty and I got together and got married. Um, and I was, uh, just prior to that, working for a large organization, a con, uh, organization on the East Coast, the, uh, Humane Society of the U.S., a senior scientist for, uh, for wildlife. And, uh, I was, uh, really, uh, hoping to get back west, uh, which is one of the favorite places, uh, in the world for me. Uh, and, uh, I was thinking, you know, two things happened. I was working, uh, on a project, uh, trying to figure out how to, uh, uh, have people uh, live with wildlife on the East Coast. You know, there's so many, concepts, uh. for example, with white-tailed deer and so forth. And at the same time, I was doing a study in Colorado, uh, where you're based, uh, and uh, it was a public survey of attitudes toward wildlife and nature. And I discovered that uh, overwhelmingly, uh, people were very concerned about uh, those things and uh, but uh the disconnect was that uh few people had any clue as to what to do uh to actually make a better world for for wildlife uh, as well as people so i got this idea of starting this organization uh called lifenet originally we sort of morphed to uh another name uh, life net nature and the idea was to uh, help people um uh Figure out how they can, in their own lives, contribute to wildlife conservation. So that's uh, very briefly how it got started.
2: So let me interrupt one second. So that was dealing mostly with with your background. This is very interesting. I would love to talk to you more about it. Um, so you were basically starting to get people here in the U.S. connected to our to our wildlife and finding ways to do that. That's the the sort of start where you got you you came from.
3: Yes, absolutely. Um, you know I was also working I uh, you know many many years work with uh Chilean colleagues on endangered huemul deer uh in in Chile and Argentina. And uh so I had a lot of on the ground experience, you know, Working with people to um, come up with a plan, especially for central Chile, where there's only about 40 animals uh, remaining, mm. to, uh, to actually make it possible to save this, this wonderful uh, national symbol of Chile. Uh, so, uh, and, you know, and then uh, actually, uh, I was heavily involved in policy, uh, and I still am. Uh, in policy? policy issue is related to wildlife conservation and you know originally in my career I, I really focused on institutions and how we could get our public institutions this was this included uh, my work in chile as well as the united states more responsive to wildlife conservation and then i started realizing that uh, there's another dimension to this as you well uh, uh, talk about on uh, your program, uh, you have to sort of think laterally about these things, is that, you know, what about people on the ground? What about local people? What about neighbors? Uh, and so when uh, Dusty and I got together, she brought in this, you know, this new dimension of uh, community-based or community-led conservation. And uh, since the, uh, uh, you know, early 2000s, uh, life has really shifted uh, more toward working with local communities, um, you know, as we'll s- discuss shortly about uh, the project in with the Maasai people in in Kenya.
2: Okay, well, this is a really good. I'm, i sorry for interrupting. This is a really good place to bring in Dusty, because this is a big, big um, quantum leap for LifeNet when Dusty came aboard with her background in working with community-based conservation and people. Dusty. Um, so you have quite a background going, dating back to the 80s and working with the Peace Corps in Kenya and um, then a bit of a hiatus and working elsewhere doing uh, bird work in, oh, I can't find it in my note here, but why don't you tell us a little bit about you and then we're going to bring this all together and move over to how LifeNet went from Chile and the U.S. into Kenya. Okay.
4: Well, <clears throat> what happened in in my life was I, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Kenya, and I was working on the Lykipia Plateau right in the middle of an elephant migration route. So I learned about human wildlife conflicts firsthand. And I was pretty young. I was 23 years old, and about 50,000 agricultural families were moving onto the plateau, planting corn, and you know, the elephants really love the new buffet yes so in my innocence i was trying to convince local people to respect the elephants and not kill them and you know let, let them pass just let them go through and of course the local farmers weren't too pleased with me and they convinced the kenya wildlife service to come up and take care of the elephant problem and um, i was actually presented an elephant's tail as a memento mm. from from the angry farmers, um, and I, I'm trying to think. One of the guys said, "You know, here's your tail. This is from the elephant that ate my roof." Mm. It's, it's
2: that brings us to a really interesting point. So I just feel like going here for a minute. Um, in a last discussion I had with some of uh, my other guests, we talked about the haves and the have-nots, and that being based on those who have wildlife and those who do not. And coming from our Western perspective, we have a luxury and uh, the disposable income to enjoy wildlife, a culture of enjoyment without going into saying Disney and thinking that there is no uh, conflict or anything else or that wildlife exists, exists in a vacuum. So being young and being somewhat naive in your first experience in Africa, uh, what was the parallel that you found in suddenly being on the other side of the coin? Those who have wildlife but were not really interested in its in its um, protection or its its future.
4: Well, I, I really sympathized with their dilemma, and at the same time, I knew that they could actually benefit from wildlife if they were you know were able to you know keep it from from entering into their their maize fields and and whatnot and I for me it was just a huge wake-up call of you know, how can we sustain wildlife in the midst of massive human population growth in Kenya and I I completely it turned my life around and had you know, I went back to do a master's degree and um, try to learn everything I could and eventually, I, I, you know, went the whole way through getting a PhD and um, studying zebra in Kenya. Um, and then I met Eleanor Ostrom, who it was during my first faculty position at Indiana University. And she was very interested in, in how local people can self-govern and actually sustain natural resources. Including wildlife, including forests, water, um, by by coming up with their own rules, and I which is
2: the which is the basis of community-based conservation.
4: Exactly
2: right. That's an important point to get across. There's a lot of different models going on in conservation, and what we can tell, and what Tony had mentioned before, is that it. And what Wild Eyes feels, and what I personally believe, is that the model that we have going on over the last let's say 100 years, Let's up to the last 20, um, isn't working because we're facing serious declines in wildlife populations all over sub-Saharan Africa, wildlife-rich areas, and we're facing huge population increases. So having a new model is really critical toward helping conservation move along, and that's what community-based conservation is. So pardon my interruption, I just wanted to have people have a better understanding of what community-based CCB conservation is compared to, let's say, the large landscape model or the heartlands model and the agenda put in by Western conservation organizations implementing on two areas where people may either not have the um, background to understand it or have a very different perspective of that wildlife. Would you say there's a parallel
4: in that? Um, definitely, and I just add, you know, that you know most most people are familiar with government approaches, government reserves, national parks and refuges, and um, they're super important, of course. But many of them are too small, and so they actually need buffer zones around them that are supportive of wildlife. And so how do you go about how do you go about
2: engendering um, the local community, um, or is it The local community already wants to be involved and has a voice and you're, and you're trying to help bring that voice up to the government level. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, both of you, your, your experiences.
4: Well, I, I, I'll talk about Ecuador um, as a, as a um, point of reference. Um, One of the projects that I, that I worked on there um, in, in Ecuador, there are already communities that, were organized into what are called comunas. So they had um, secure land tenure of entire watersheds, and um, the community-based approaches for conservation with that sort of group um, is incredibly easy because they're already organized into you know they already have a self-governing system for making decisions about their their land, um, and the other aspect is that, that in Latin America, there's a strong tr- tradition of, of putting collective interests ahead of individual interests. And so in a, in the process of, of giving them information about how their forests were collecting water from, from ocean fogs, they quickly used their local system of governance to say, um, "Okay, we're going to protect this forest because it is our water resource." So, community-based approaches—I've um, been interested in when are they the most successful, and when when are they the most challenging? And I and I I you know I think um, Ecuador may be a particular special case. How so? Well, in that they have these, these communas and, and good, good collective governance. I think when you go, say, in the United States, things are much more individualistic and it's harder, you know, even on a neighborhood level to get everybody to come to the table and agree about something like, um, protecting a forest or, or restraining what each individual does. Whereas right. in Latin America, um, and I, you know, I'm especially—it's yeah, amazing. Rural Ecuador, extremely um, poor people, people that are making, you know, on the order of maybe $800 a year um, to a couple of thousand dollars a year. We're not talking the the middle class or, or city wealthy. These poor rural farmers made this choice to protect 7,000 acres of tropical forests um, after four or five meetings, and it was unanimous.
2: So I'd, I'd say you hit on three really, really critical points right there in what we face doing conservation, making conservation happen. Land tenure, for one. Mm-hmm. The sense of community and uh, community ownership and belongingness. And then a sense of isolation also, so here in the in the west we it, you just said we have a, a real sense of the individual identity, and uh, I think some ways that has a tendency to uh, defeat our purpose and, and our ability to come together to protect large landscapes or even small landscapes your your green space your your local wildlife there's so many city state federal levels that are not necessarily coordinated. And then, um, of course, there's private property, which we get into. And then land tenure in Ecuador, as you said, communities are all a part of this. It's it's sort of a co-op, for lack of a better word, of how a, a community ranch works together. In Kenya, this is a really different idea that the group ranches, a group of people will come together and have a group ranch, which has to be uh, stated for some particular purpose to the government, and typically it's been agriculture or livestock. So you coming into Kenya and starting up with a group of young Maasai Moran and uh, and Maasai youth, um, from what I understand of what you've been doing, they already had come together as a community and were approaching you, but what what you're seeing and where i'm trying to get to is there is a huge difference in what the difference of land tenure and community makes in how conservation happens how did you find that uh working for you and against you in kenya
3: well um i don't you know we um we actually uh got started on this project maybe i could just back up and and provide a little background on how yeah. this um, came about um Dusty had organized a birding safari uh in Kenya and uh, we took a group of i guess about 15 people uh to various parts of Kenya to visit some of the reserves and we also went down to the coast uh, and work with some people uh on uh on a conservation project so it was a combination of sort of safari and uh, in this case, helping uh folks on the coast with some conservation issues
2: and this so, was about two years ago right when you, when we good. were talking
3: yeah exactly okay. uh, when uh, we uh we went uh, one of our visits was to uh, a place uh just to the west of the uh world famous uh, masai Mara national reserve and uh the uh the topography is, is really quite interesting. Um, you have a vast grassland and uh, acacia woodland uh, that, uh, uh, you know, is so expansive that, you know, the eye just wanders for, for many minutes as you, as you marvel at it. Uh, and then you have this on the west side of this incredible grassland, which is actually part of the Musaimara, uh Serengeti ecosystem, as, as it extends south uh you have this uh, very interesting uh, escarpment uh and above the escarpment there's this plateau well we were up on the plateau and we had great uh views down on the mara and uh the escarpment itself which we can get to later it's a very unique uh, ecological community uh that's uh, i think really undervalued but in any event, uh, we did some birding. Uh, we met some of the local people. Uh, we camped, and uh, Dusty and I were, we, you know, we were talking uh, on the side, and there was this really handsome, very tall, uh, statuesque uh, Maasai man that was watching us. Uh, he was in his traditional um, uh, uh, garments, and uh, you know, it was just really wonderful. He was <laughs> standing toward the uh, escarpment, and you know, his the background was the Maasai Mara. And so we, he came over to us, and uh, this was a case where, you know, sometimes you meet people and you seem like you've known for years. Yes. His chemistry was just unbelievable. Uh, and uh, we immediately uh, established a friendship, I mean, literally within minutes. And he explained to us that uh, he was very concerned about his community uh, in the sense that the young people were underemployed or not employed. And at the same time, uh, there were some very, very energetic uh, and um, uh, talented uh, young people in the community that were also uh, very interested in wildlife. uh, And he wondered whether we could um, help help the group uh, uh, with uh, uh, issues related to wildlife conservation. Uh, So that's how we actually, So he invited us back uh and uh we uh we very quickly as the program and we came back with some volunteers and the first uh uh session which was um i guess gosh it was february 2012 um we uh we had a great group of young people about it, it was an extremely uh, exciting feat to be involved uh, such wonderful people that uh, in wildlife conservation really really <clears throat> conveyed to us their of uh, nature of the open lands and for grazing and vision. these young people that all of this was that uh, agriculture uh, okay, was- I'm going
2: to I'm going to interrupt you here for a second. I think we're going to go to our break and we'll be back in about a minute and a half and in the meantime if you would like to call in that number is 866-472-5788. Or send us an email at wildize at wildeyes.org. And be sure to visit our website at wildeyes.org to learn more about our projects. And visit lifenetnature.org to learn more about Dr. Uh, Tony Povolidis and Dr. Dusty Becker's projects. And we'll be right back.
1: Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry.
0: By adopting these techniques, you will keep your energy body and physical body in harmony. Listen for Energy Medicine and Optimal Health, Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness.
1: business talk. Surprise you. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World.
2: Well, hello everybody. We're back again. Sorry about the technical difficulties. Uh, we're here with Dr. Tony po- Povilidis and Dr. Dusty Becker of LifeNet Nature. And they are working together on a uh, relatively new project called, um, the Maasai, uh, youth, uh, Maasai Youth Initiative and Maasai Walking Safaris, uh, up on the Syria Plateau in Kenya, which is right out, right on the buffer zone of the Maasai Mara. So, um, we've been having an interesting discussion, and I'd like to get into some other points. Our time goes so fast. Both of you have had so much experience in in setting up and working with community-based conservation, um, and it's parallels here in the U.S. Uh, Tony or Dusty, maybe you can uh, enlighten us a bit on the role of self-governance on a conservation project in a place such as Africa or Ecuador, and why that's so critical to making conservation projects happen.
4: Well, I just mentioned about Loma Alta in Ecuador, Um, that having the community involved and communicating back, in a sense, communicating back to itself is really powerful in conservation. Um, And in the case of Ecuador, we we involved local people in actually measuring the fog capture of a forest. so people went up you know up into the forest and used used um we actually used cans huh. to to trap you know to collect the throughfall the the dripping the dripping fog and then measured that in in cylinders graduated cylinders and then put that into You know, we actually made a video about it because a lot of, a lot of the local people were not literate. They, they would not have understood all of, all of the, the numbers and measurements. And, but they were the decision makers. And so we could show, um, the water underneath a forest pouring lots of water out of the cans compared to areas where there was no forest. Um, having no water collected so in a,
2: in a very real way you're transferring the knowledge between the technology that we have available to a rural community who might not have the education or the ability to understand this technology but can see it in a very real way and thus incorporate it into their lifestyle
4: exactly and also act on it they can take that information very quickly and use their self-governance um, in, in Ecuador they they had meetings. And they would call meetings of the community for for any kind of decision making that regarded management of community resources. And so when the the news of this importance of the forest for collecting water and how important that was for their agriculture, the community quickly held um, six meetings and At each meeting, they were trying to decide what to do and how to make rules. Um, and in the end, they decided to, they started out with protecting about 3,000 acres of forest. And they have since expanded that using their, their local system of governance. Um, and, and, you know, the main reason was so that they could secure their water resources. And it's just amazing. There are communities beside them that didn't make that decision and they're completely desertified. And in fact, this community is selling water to other communities.
2: So, what are the parallels that you're finding in um, the time frame that you started up the project with the Maasai? What are some of the parallels that you're drawing? Do you find you're starting from um, square one, ground zero? Um, I realize you're you're seeing uh, relationships that are similar between what's happening in Kenya and what happened in Ecuador, but. Um, are you starting from scratch and helping the Maasai create self-governance, or did they already have that there? And and what are some
4: of the parallels and uh, ramifications and consequences? I I think we're still trying to get a grip on what their local governance systems are. Um, I I I get the sense that it's well, it's definitely not as well organized as the situation in the comunas in Ecuador. Um, there's not clearly monthly meetings or, it, it, you know, it's, but they do, they, they do quickly bring people together. We've, we've had a couple of um, times where our youth group, has just said we need to, you know, we need to get this information to the leaders, to the chiefs. So there's a lot more orientation towards informing the chiefs, and they they quickly pull together um, meetings in that in that way. Well, you're taking hu- huge leaps because in working in Africa for
2: 20 years uh, myself, uh, this has been one of the biggest leaps that I find in any project that's starting up. In Africa, is getting that community go- sense of governance, the sense of community, the sense of who is the community, who all is involved. Uh, the the Syria plateau is a very large place. It's not just one village. It's a variety of villages, and probably up to something like 12,000 people who will be affected is 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 my guess. And um, pulling all that together in any particular area. And not having to completely reinvent the wheel each time is a challenge, and I can only imagine some of the uh, the, uh, uh, the challenges you faced. Yesterday, when we were talking a bit, you said you had an interesting story of how you um, of how this all got started. Uh, sort of a fun, interesting story. Would you like to share that with us?
4: Well, sure. it, it's a, it's along along the lines of when Tony Tony and I met Julius. Um, And Tony actually is missing his two lower teeth. And the Maasai Maasai have that feature. And so uh, many of the Maasai that we would meet would notice this about Tony and would say, oh, you're a Maasai already. Let me break in here. The reason um,
2: in a lot of African tribal villages, they pull the bottom two uh, uh, teeth in the front, and that is in case they get lockjaw or some disease, then a straw or a reed can be put into the mouth and nourishment can be provided and medical assistance can be provided on a, on a rather quick quick uh, scale.
3: Yeah, and it's also a bit of a... Status, uh, to have, uh, your two, uh, incisors missing. Uh, at least that's the impression that I got. And, uh, of course, the Messiah are quite puzzled as to why this, uh, Mzungu that, you know, from the United States is, uh, has the same uh feature as uh as many of the, the Maasai themselves um i just want to say a quick word about the governance thing what i found was that um, uh you know the land tenure issue is very uh uh very unclear uh in fact the Maasai are dealing with this because formally this was all community land and then uh what happened was it, it began to be privatized and uh, and uh, so now there are People who have title to the land. There are some people who live on the land who don't have title to the land, and there's are still uh, some lands that are considered to be community lands. And uh, really, for the uh, this concept of a conservation area next to the uh, Maasai Mara, uh, it's uh, it's an area of about oh ten thousand to fifteen thousand acres that that uh, the Maasai are looking at, uh, and. Uh, uh, the idea is to uh, uh, bring together the families that are living there uh, and to form uh, this conservation association or conservancy. Uh, and so Ben, uh, who's um, uh, one of the Maasai, that's uh, sort of the chair of this uh, new organization that uh, that's just been created. It's, it's actually officially called the Maasai Moran or Maasai Warrior. Uh, conservation and walking safaris. Uh, that's, that's the the, the official title. Okay. But, so they're, uh, so, so they're struggling with this right now. It seems to be coming along. The good thing is, um, uh, several of the uh, young people who are part of this group, but the core group of about a dozen people, uh, actually, uh, are in the, uh, proposed conservation zone. So, uh, they're, uh, they're working with, we're we're you need to um i'm sorry
2: tony we're we're losing some of your comments, and I don't wanna miss what you're saying uh be sure to face the microphone since we're not on a headset
3: absolutely yeah we don't have the latest technology yes. so. <laughs> <laughs> anyway uh so so they're they're creating these conservation clusters of of neighbors uh which is an exciting idea very and it's um it seems to be working uh, so their program at this point has um Really, three different components. Uh, one of them has to do with with uh, creating this uh, ecotourism program, wh- which is focused on actually taking people out to walk with the wildlife uh, to find your inner nomad, as it's been put. Mm-hmm and another aspect is to uh, to actually start doing this wildlife monitoring which uh uh it, it, which we're calling wildlife counts which has a sort of a double meaning there a really good double meaning and the purpose of that is to uh, to be able to plan for conservation and to plan for walking safaris because if you know where the concentrations of wildlife are, that's the place where you'd want to take people. Uh, There's also an educational component, I think, that you were were suggesting, um, you know, in terms of that the more information in the community about their wildlife.
2: You're talking about something that's really close to my heart and very, very important. Um, I'm not sure if everybody heard that. The more you are aware of what you have, and the value of what you have, not only in economic terms, but in community terms, the more you're going to take care of it and be aware of what it needs and how it works with you. And that works in terms of economic benefit um, and what I've been saying over the last several shows. Uh, food security, social security, meaning the security of the community, uh, livelihood security, and... Uh, um, uh, lifeway security. So, the, the, the Moran project that you're working with is really a huge step forward and, um, I'm sure it's quite a challenge. Uh, speaking on the self-governance, the, the next point, uh, point of importance that we would go towards is this has got to be quite a challenge and do you find any parallels between the challenges you're facing there and the challenges that we face here in the U.S. in getting people involved and wanting to live with their wildlife?
3: Tony? Yeah, I think the key to it is uh, a common interest uh, in wildlife. Uh, And uh, where we live in Arizona, it's a fairly rural area, uh, but people have very divergent views, uh, about, about wildlife. And unfortunately, some of it's ideologically based. In other words, uh, when we speak about, uh, restoring the, uh, the jaguar to the American Southwest, uh, a lot of people for ideological reasons oppose that just simply because they see it as, uh, oh, uh, environmentalists trying to impinge on, uh, on, uh, 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 land use rights, uh, whereas I don't find that as much in other countries, um, in Chile, Ecuador, and of course in Kenya, there isn't that ideological barrier that you have to overcome, uh, as you do in the United States. So that's a good thing. And that's, uh, that's one of the real pluses for me to work, uh, with the Maasai is that, uh, you know, people are genuinely uh, concerned about uh, making room for wildlife as part of their Tradition as part of their culture, and uh, this is a this is an option that they want to remain open. Does and, that option include the carnivores? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yes. And it's it's as you as you well know in Africa how challenging it is. When we were there last time, there was a leopard that actually moved up one of the uh, one of the draws, one of the riparian areas, and uh, got into a boma and killed uh, nineteen goats. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's the challenge is to, uh, be able to minimize such losses to show economic value, for example, through a really good walking safari program. Uh, and at the same time, uh, you know, have people, uh, give people the opportunity or enable people to, uh, to really uh, move ahead as quickly as they can uh, before it 's too late
2: it 's also an opportunity right there on the ground when a leopard comes in and kills fourteen or fifteen of your goats, which has quite a value. I mean we may not think much of that at, at fifty dollars a goat, but you know the 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 livelihood of that goat and what it would have provided to a family and to a community is quite large in terms of the economics. So, you, you ran into a perfect example of being able to change an attitude. Uh, like, do we immediately want to remove that leopard as a problem animal? Or are we willing to find a way to work around the economic and the spiritual side of what that, the, the importance of that leopard to our walking safaris, to our conservation ability, to our buffer zone, versus the strict economic term of loss of livelihood?
3: And the Did local you? people and the local people really appreciate and the leaders in the community really appreciate the fact that that people from uh, from elsewhere, in this case, the United States are really lending a helping hand. Uh just before we left last time, uh, uh, the chief told us, he said, you know, you were here in February. We were there in August as well as February. And he said, you were here in February and you said you would come back. And, you know, you actually came back that's the biggest that's that's a huge
2: huge aspect um, we've all encountered a lot of tourists that want to help on the ground they get to Africa and they make a connection um, like so many of us have, but they don't often come back when they leave Africa and they get back home um, in their life in their problems in their in their daily living Africa sort of recedes in their memory as an experience and an activity that they really enjoyed but what i've found over the years i've been working there is those who come back make a huge difference and right there you've created the um the bottom line of trust and respect
3: yeah we're we're going back again in february with a group of volunteers and by the way if there's any listener that would be interested in joining us why uh, just please contact us it will be an experience of a lifetime
2: well, let's tell, tell people how to do that. You can, um, what uh, the Maasai Moran Youth Group and the Walking Safaris, they are a volunteer program. They do accept volunteers from all walks of life. And you can log on or visit lifenet.org, that's L-I-F-E-N-E-T dot org, and see what uh, Tony and Dusty are doing in Kenya and some of their other projects if Kenya is not, uh, your bag of, um, interest. There's a lot of places that they're working. And, uh, you can also find more, uh, about what they're doing by contacting WildEyes at WildEyes at WildEyes.org. Or you can call into the show sometime at 866-472-5788. And we have, uh, our Facebook pages, uh, Both uh, Dr. Becker and Dr. Povalides have Facebook pages, so it is uh, lifenet.org and uh, WildEyes and Twitter. So if you're interested in getting involved and seeing another side of how community-based conservation works that makes parallels to you in your own backyard and our wildlife here, please contact them and uh, sign up for possibly what could be one of the best learning experiences of your life. We have a few more minutes to close. Is there anything that you, Tony, or Dusty would like to to make sure we um, we hear and understand about your project?
4: Well, I just um, like to to tell people some of the things that we do during the project, so they would would know what it's like. Okay, um, we've got about eight minutes. I'd love to I'd love to hear some of this. Well, for for one, the the young Maasai have a huge learning curve in terms of hosting hosting visitors from different parts of the world and so we do a lot of very basic things like uh learn, learning how to make simple campsites being sure the water that people have is is safe to drink learning how to how to cook um right. so it's 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 and at the same time we're doing the wildlife monitoring so we're um going out on transects and um, recording the different animals that we see, wild wild animals as, lo- as well as domestic animals, and then we're we're doing forest surveys, bird surveys. So um, we're really in need of good good um, you know people with good bird watching skills as well on these volunteer projects. And then we do a lot of, of group dynamics work where, you know, we sit down and say what, what works and what, you know, what what isn't going to work on a safari, um, a walking safari, and what will the designs of the safaris be. And heard, So you're
2: dealing a lot with expectations on both sides of the coin, what the Maasai expect and what your volunteers and your visitors expect.
4: Exactly. And we're, we're incredibly lucky to have this group of young people working with us because um, many of them have struggled to get, you know, a, a forestry degree. They, they they've all finished their secondary education. Most of them, in fact, all of them, were either in wildlife clubs of Kenya or um, a program called Friends of Conservation. So they're they're very eager to continue with the things that they've learned, and. Um, my, my first job was as a, as a teacher. And for me, I think there's nothing sadder than someone who has decided that, that conservation is what they want to do with their life and then to have no opportunity to do it. And, you know, kids here in the United States face that all the time. They finish their wildlife biology degree and they can't get a job. Well, it's even, it's much worse in Kenya.
2: And several- you're you're, a- you're absolutely right, you bring up a really big point there uh, which we've covered many times over the show Our wild world is that those who live in Africa with this incredible variety and diversity of and rich wildlife resource um very rarely have the opportunity to engage with it in uh in a in a Situation that is not based on a conflict, as we were talking about earlier—an elephant coming in and wiping out your 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 maize crop, or a leopard coming in and eating your goats—and then we here in the West have this um, sort of disassociated look at wildlife, as though it's there to entertain us for our enjoyment. So I, I imagine a lot of what you're dealing with, um, which we can cover real quickly in the last five minutes here, is. Bridging that gap between your visitors understanding what it takes to live with wildlife and in the lifestyle with everything you just described, the rather rustic conditions, let's put it, um, of a working conservation group that's starting up versus um, the working conservation group f- facing a lot of Western uh, mindsets that don't quite understand what all is involved. Yeah, definitely.
4: I, I mean. Everything has to start from from the, the ground up. One thing, you know, as as our walking safari program, we don't really want to build up a lot of you know fancy fancy campsites. We want to keep it very simple, very basic, and and you know really protect the area for the for the wildlife. Yet still have the opportunity for these young people and for the community to benefit monetarily from conserving the wildlife in their area Um, so a lot of these young people uh, it was shocking to me that here they are right next to the maasai mara reserve and they'd never actually been into it
2: it's a huge issue Um, a lot of africans do not have the opportunity nor the funding to get in and see uh, into the reserves or the national parks and see the wildlife from the Western perspective, once again, it goes back to that culture of enjoyment or photographic, uh, and Tony and I have talked about this before on a LinkedIn discussion, that um, there's, there is something to be said, a lot to be said for wildlife to exist on its own, for its own reasons, and not because of our exploitation or utilization of it and then dealing with um, the Maasai or any other uh, project on the ground in Kenya who has to live with this wildlife and doesn't often get the uh, opportunity to simply enjoy it. We have a couple more minutes here um, before we wrap up, so I would like to just once again say please contact uh, Dr. Dusty Becker or Dr. Tony Povolidis at lifenetnature.org. Um, you can certainly join in on some LinkedIn discussions that we have going on Uh with the African Wildlife Professionals and Wildlife Professionals groups. You can check out uh, WildEyes' website at wildeyes.org or email us at wildeyes at wildeyes.org. So um, I'd like to hear from our audience out there. If you have questions, please check in. And um, I would love to have Tony and Dusty back because I don't think we got to cover nearly as much as um we we wanted to this hour goes so fast we have about one minute um anything any closing comments or remarks
3: yeah, i'd like to thank you uh, ellie uh, for your incredibly uh, important show radio show and the other work that you do uh especially in africa you are an inspiration and um uh, uh it uh you know it It really is clear to me, I hope it's clear to all the listeners, that um, all of us as individuals and as community members can be involved in wildlife conservation make a better world for both people and wildlife.
2: Absolutely, and thank you for that, Tony. That's the point of what I personally try to do and what this show is about is to get people um, engaged in living with wildlife, deciding what kind of planet we want to have not only right now, but for the short-term and long-term future. Uh, a planet that has wildlife, including the carnivores, that we um, compete with for resources and uh, can make challenges in our lives. And working with people who have rich wildlife resources to find a, a, a healthier way and a more it sounds so trite, harmonious way to live with the wildlife that they have rather than making the mistakes that we have made uh, and losing that. So we're going to sign off now. We have about 30 seconds, and um, I would love to have Tony and uh, Dusty back again. I'd like to hear you say a big yes on that one. um, Yes, (laughs) yes. Great, because I'd like to continue. Maybe we can pick this up next week if you guys are available and um, if we hear from some of our listeners of some points that they would like to find as uh, talking with people who are actually working on the ground. So I guess that's it for our wild world today. So I'd like you, as you sign off and uh, go about your day, to take a look outside, stand on some grass, go Put your feet on some grass, lean up against a tree, and think about your wild world, our wild world, and find out what you can do to make things a little better for all of the earthlings on our planet. So once again, this is Ellie Weiss in our wild world, our guests, Dr. Tony Povolidis and Dr. Dusty Becker, and saying happy wild world to you today. Thank you.